This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hi, this is Asian Insider. I'm your host, Nirmal Ghosh. And today we focus on Myanmar, a country of 53 million people in a state of civil war whose economy is in a state of collapse, 1% growth in fiscal 2023-24, and whose grey zone borderlands in particular generate regional and global waves of drugs and cybercrime and also desperate migrants. And I have with me Sean Turnell and Dr. Michael Vaticiotis. Professor Turnell, among many other things, and the list is really long, I won't bother uh, with it over here, served as Senior Economic Advisor to Myanmar's Democratic Government led by Do Aung San Suu Kyi. Following the military coup of February 2021, Professor Turnell was imprisoned in Myanmar. After 650 days, he was released in November 2022. And I highly recommend his latest book, which is on that experience. It is titled An Unlikely Prisoner. Dr. Vatikiotis has been a writer, broadcaster and journalist in Asia for more than 35 years. Gentlemen, thank you very much for fitting us in. Good to see you both. Thank you very much, Nirmal. Wonderful to be here, mate. Happy to be here, Nirmal. So, Sean, it's hard to overstate the magnitude of this. We have maybe half the population living just one small shock away from disaster. May I start with asking you, what would you advise in terms of alleviating this in the immediate term for people in Myanmar? Yeah, thanks, Nirmal. I mean, it's, it's a great question with a very simple answer, and that is the regime that took over in the coup has just got to go because the salient fact of Myanmar's economy and its terrible performance is that it's all policy-driven. You know, th- this is not coming from natural disasters. It's not about long-term trends. You know, it's got nothing to do with energy problems or anything like that. It's actually the management of the economy, which has caused problems just right across the board. So it's a policy story. It's deliberately induced in a sense, which I'm sure we'll get into. So, yeah, it's a profound change in economic policymaking, which really, and being realistic about it, requires a change in the government. Right. So you mentioned the other day, in fact, that since the coup d'etat, Myanmar has become a military command economy. Could you elaborate on that? And what is the prognosis if this continues? Yeah, that's right, mate. So we're used to economies where the broad objective of government, you know, for all their failings here and there, but the broad objective is about raising living standards, you know, chasing high growth rates and all that. And, you know, trying to meet the expectations of investors and voters and all the rest of it. So even in countries that are not democracies, there's a degree of accountability on the economic front. But if we look at Myanmar, that's just not true. The regime is so desperate at the moment that its economic policy framework is really about just garnering as much resources as they can to survive. And so mostly this is in the form of foreign exchange or or most acutely in the area of foreign exchange, but it's others as well. But yeah, it's a very singular policy. And I deliberately use that war economy because, yeah, again, it's it's an economy that is fitted around that one objective. The difference being in this case that that objective is being dictated by a very small group of generals at the time to, you know, no no good ends as far as the rest of the population are concerned. Mm. Michael, events are moving quite rapidly on the ground lately. Could you comment perhaps on the overall dynamics of the conflict? What should the international community understand about what is going on in Myanmar? And again, what is the prognosis going forward given what we've seen in recent weeks? Well, Nimal, thank you. I think the first thing to say is that the understanding of the dynamics of the conflict is extremely hard to grasp. 
I mean, there are, there are obviously, you know, lots of simple forms of analysis out there about the trajectory of the conflict. But actually, for those of us who watch the situation in detail, it's actually quite hard to see where this is going. It's obviously in the last three months taken some interesting turns into areas that we've not experienced in the country for, I mean, let's face it, you know, since the civil war began in the 1940s. Because what we've seen in the last three months is two things that is uh, that are different from before. One is the ability of the ethnic armed organizations to coalesce and form effective alliances, which is a calculation that the Myanmar military made in the past that was unlikely because of deep divisions and not just ethnic and religious divisions necessarily, but economic the division of economic interests as well the competing interests that they have in these in these areas that they semi-control. But there is still, I think it's fair to say, a great deal of skepticism about the projection of the collapse of the Myanmar army. I think there's still a great reluctance to believe that actually things can just completely fly apart and we'll see wholesale fragmentation. But there is no doubt that what we're seeing today is very different from before. We've seen tremendous losses of the part of the Myanmar army or Tatmadaw in key areas. They've lost a regional command in northern Shan state. They could lose another regional command in Kareni state or Kaya state. Some of the fighting is happening quite close to Naypyidaw and Mandalay. And, and, and then for the first time in, in, the long, in the country's long civil war, areas of the dry zone, Amar areas, mm-hmm. have experienced fighting. And so this is all new territory. But it really is very difficult to predict where it's going. And one of the most likely things, in my view, is not so much a collapse uh, of, the, of the army. I think we were likely to see before then changes at the top, changes of leadership, and perhaps a shift in direction in the hope that they can gain control of the situation. Sean, would you like to add something to that? Yeah, just to totally agree with Michael's points, but particularly that last one, Nimal. I think, you know, it's been a wonder to me that others around the top have not decided that a change is needed, you know, because I reflect upon just the hundreds of millions of dollars, for instance, that have been lost by cronies and other people sort of connected and at the top of the military elite. Surely, I mean, what one can only imagine that there must be a question amongst those people, you know, why don't we make a change? And, and I think for all sorts of, you know, cynical reasons or, and otherwise, There'd be all sorts of actors who would welcome a change, whether it be China, whether it be countries in the region, and it wouldn't even require full democracy or anything like that. You know, again, it could be sort of quite cynical in a way, but but why it hasn't happened is is to my wonderment, to be frank. Yeah, interesting. And you mentioned, you know, the loss of millions of dollars and stuff. So let's get back to the economy for a moment, or more accurately, the illicit economies and transnational crime. We've seen China recently unleashing proxies to crack down on organized cybercrime, you know, based in gray zone border areas. And I should mention this is prevalent not only in Myanmar, but in Laos and Cambodia as well, where, you know, the casinos, as we know, are used as a sort of underground banking system laundering illicit money. Uh, The global reach of cybercrime in particular, the notorious scam compounds, has been impacting a large number of Chinese as well, which is why, you know, China has taken interest. And on another front, opium, of course, has made a comeback. Farmers have to survive. And apparently, traffickers are even pre-financing opium crops. So, Sean, any thoughts on that, those illicit economies? Yeah, I mean, it's a great point, again, Nermot, because like, as the formal economy has contracted, 
into that space has once again grown that illicit economy. And sometimes, of course, that's just everyday people trying to survive, you know, deliberately sitting outside that formal economy. But in addition to that is exactly the issue that you've mentioned, which is sort of new, this transnational crime, which before was more or less than our business. But as you say, now these sort of scam colonies and, and internet fraud and all sorts of things are people being tricked into Myanmar in order to do this. I mean, it's really an extraordinary development, which, as you say, has made China extremely unhappy, as has the Myanmar regime's response to that and their allowance of this to continue. But, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very awful thing that if one was to say, where is Myanmar's economy growing at the moment? And it is nowhere except for illicit but even criminal activity that's where the growth is yeah which is a just a, a terrible uh, stamp if you like on the current regime and huge liability for the region as well i mean michael would you care to add to that well i think i mean it's fair to say that again the long history of conflict in myanmar has bred a tradition of transnational crime syndicates as sean was saying mostly initially in the, in the area of narcotics production more recently synthetic narcotics but opium is creeping back up largely because of increased demand in in china and other parts of the world but you know i think one has to be really careful about this because you can't lay complete blame at the door of the constitutional authorities in in, in napidor because for many of the areas which have been controlled by these ethnic armies for many, many decades. I mean, it's essentially how they make their living. You know, the felling of timber and its export, illegal exports across borders, the massive amounts of trade that sort of passes informally between China and, and Myanmar and to some extent uh, other bordering countries as well, and the way in which the ethnic armies themselves fund their operations from this illicit activity. And often the, the basis of the sort of fragile peace ceasefire accords that are put together are essentially a deal between the authorities and the ethnic armies on on sharing the benefits of that illicit economy. And so I think it's fair to say that the illicit economy aspect of the conflict is essentially the fuel that keeps everything going. You know, there's not traditionally been a lot of fighting. You know, it's kind of on a Tuesday and a Thursday and it's break for holidays, you know, and, you know, long periods of effective ceasefires where essentially that has allowed the illicit economy to continue. So I think it's fair to say it's very much part of the landscape. It's not new. Yes, as you say, as you point out, the forms in which the transnational crime are taking have changed and evolved, and very alarmingly so, as you say, with the import of, of people from as far away as, as India, Ukraine, you know, to sort of run these scam centers. And I would also add into the mix that Thailand is very much part of this in some of the, some of the key new areas border Thailand, well as you know, inside Myanmar. So yeah, it's very much part of a landscape in Myanmar. No, excellent point, excellent point. So look, it's hard to see a scenario, however optimistic, and Sean, I'm going to get back to you because you described yourself as an optimist in your book. So it's hard to see a scenario in which there are so many armed groups involved in conflict transitioning from a state of pretty much perpetual war to no war. I mean, Michael, what do the principal actors in Myanmar want? Is there any momentum at all for a negotiated peace and what could that possibly look like? Well, the overall, the consensus on what people want is essentially goes back to a promise made at the dawn of the country's existence by one of the founders of the independent Burma, as it was then, for a federal democracy, a federal union. And I, I think it's fair to say that the form of federalism that ideally would take shape in the country would be akin to 
the union model in India, where areas are defined by ethnicity and govern themselves loosely under a centralized, constitutionally mandated form of federalism. However, I think that is slowly evolving into something a little bit more uh, sophisticated and complex, and so led by the Arakan army, for instance, in the Rakhine state, that has started to talk in terms of a confederation, a much looser form of being bound together. And again, that feeds into this sort of rather alarming fragmentation scenario, which I think many regional countries actually fear quite a bit. You know, what happens if Myanmar is no longer a sort of typically Southeast Asian fairly centralized political entity. This is kind of unheard of in Southeast Asia. I think it's also fair to say that one of the problems I remember, and, you know, Sean, I'd like to get your view on this because you were there for much of the transition as well, post-2011, is that I found that there was a lack of vision among Myanmar political actors and all the constituent elements of the country. I mean, they rarely came together to discuss actually what they wanted. There was a heavy emphasis on process and the formalized process of negotiation, whether it's a ceasefire or talking about eventual federalism, but not a great deal of consensus building about what people actually wanted, and not a lot of asking of what people actually wanted. A very top-down, government-driven process, extremely formal and lacking very often in substance. I don't know. I, I felt that even in the good times when negotiations were underway, they were not very substantive. And they didn't really improve the situation at all. Sean, your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I, I think that's largely fair comment. I think what happened, again, as Michael, you said, you know, my, my time there and, and to witness some of this, I think what happened was that there was great activity on that front right at the beginning of the NLD administration. Few roadblocks were hit. Then we get things like, of course, the terrible atrocities in Rakhine and, so on, and the expulsion of the Rohingya and and things sort of went a bit off the rails, I would think, at that political level. Interestingly enough, underneath it, I think there was quite a lot of progress intellectually and perhaps a bit, though, more progress, as you say, Michael, on the economic front about like preparing what a federation might look like. So from my point, there was a bit more progress, but, but as I say, at a sort of you know conceptual point, which may perhaps become useful at some point in the future. But yeah, I, I do take your point. I think you know because of that sort of derailment, I think some of those really big questions were put off a little bit with an expectation that once things got a bit better in Rakhine, once the economic reform started to become embedded and so on, that some of those big questions, the existential questions of the state in Myanmar, would come back on the agenda. But of course, that that, that never came. So, and, and I think it's very, very important to state, Nirmal, that you know one can't underestimate the tremendously deep, long-lasting levels of mistrust um, between the constituent elements of the country. The only thing that sort of flies in the face of that is that over the years, of course, many of these areas are no longer so ethnically defined. I mean, large areas of Kachin state, for instance, have huge Bama populations, especially in that transitional period where the economy was picking up. It was large scale movements. People moved here and there. You know, there was a great deal more mixing, especially, as you say, uh, Sean, in terms of you know, the economic, the economy of the country. And so it's no longer, I think, possible to say that Shan State is completely populated by Shans, Pachin State by Pachins. I mean, there's been this tremendous flux in sort of demographics, but there are still very deep levels of mistrust. It's not even towards the military as such. It's of Bama people by the non-Bama people. And I, you know, I've seldom seen in Southeast Asia 
that level of mistrust between groups. I mean, it's, you know, it's there in, in Malaysia between Malays and non-Malays, you know, in Indonesia, Muslims, non-Muslims, but, you know, they rub along and, and there's a degree of consensus about sort of pluralism. But in the case of Myanmar, that pluralism is so problematic, deep reservoirs of mistrust makes it very difficult to have those visions of the future. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. The consensus that forms in the moment could, you know, is, is inherently fragile in a place like Myanmar. Sean, back to your optimism. You mentioned optimism in your book. A last word from you. Do you remain an optimist? Well, I, I do. No, well, I mean, part of it is a personality trait. Um, but I, I do have reservoirs of optimism. One of them just concerns the current situation. I mean, it does seem to me that the current regime are on the back foot, and I think that's militarily. But if we look at things like, again, you know, their obsession about access to foreign exchange, I think that's all of signs are pointing in that same direction of, you know, desperation and a regime on the ropes. So that's one form of optimism. The other one, which is more sunny, if I can say, is just my just how impressed I am with the young people and the new generation that are leading this revolution. They're different, I think, in orders of magnitude and in the sort of nuance and, and now in understanding the, the modern world, modern economy and so on. So I, I'm sort of in awe of them. And, you know, if only things would open up such as that younger generation, you know, could, could get into the levers of power, get hold of them. I'm really optimistic from that point. I'm also optimistic on a sort of, I guess, a darker point as well, which is just that the economy, for instance, is sunk so low that the return to some normality in policymaking will cause dramatic returns in growth, you know, because Myanmar's economy at the moment is still 10% smaller than it was in 2019. So bring about just a part, you know, largely a decent government, I think we would see those economic growth rates swing around really quickly and substantially. So, yeah, just a few points of optimism then in an otherwise, you know, gloomy portrait. Excellent points, excellent points. Thank you for mentioning the young people, actually. That, that's very pertinent. So, Sean Turnell, Michael Vaticutis, thank you very much for joining me. This, this was an excellent conversation. And that nicely wraps this discussion up for the Asian Insider podcast. I'm your host, Nirmal Ghosh. Join me and my expert guests for the next episode on the fourth Friday of every month. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or within our Straits Times app. Thanks for listening.